So the next uh, part of the program is to start the program. And to do that, um, my uh, close colleague and friend, Mike Sag. Mike is a professor of medicine at the Uni University of Alabama, Birmingham, uh, and will begin the day by kind of looking a bit back uh, as we, in the rest of the program, look forward. Mike is going to talk about the first 30 years of what we've been doing. Well, thanks. And um, this has been uh, sort of a momentous year in a number of ways, but I thought it would be kind of interesting and, and um, fun in a backhanded way to review the last 30 years and uh, to talk about where we've been. And knowing a lot of you in the audience, um, many of you have been involved for more than 20 years, some of you all the way back to 1981. For those of you who are relatively new to HIV, this may fill in some gaps in your knowledge of, um, of so you sort of know of how we got here, but this will take us back. And as we go, you'll see pictures of folks, including uh, our chair this morning, Dr. Volberding, um, who doesn't look a bit different uh, than he did 30 years ago. So this is um, 30 years of HIV and AIDS, where we've been, where are we going? So we really have to go back to around 1900. And, and we sort of start looking at uh, chimpanzees in the wild. And the chimps have an uh, animal retrovirus, an SIV, that became infected, that transmitted, it was a zoonosis that went from uh, chimps to humans. And you say, well, how did that happen? No, it's not the way you're first imagining it. It's because bushmeat is a very common staple uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, especially in the uh, rich jungle areas like around Cameroon. And when the animals were butchered in the field so they didn't have to bring the whole carcass back, a bloody carcass over someone's shoulders for miles, uh, it's pretty easy to see how a blood-borne pathogen could transfer. What happened after that, these are, this is work done by Beatrice Hahn predominantly, and you can see in this area of Cameroon where the troglodytus troglodytus uh, chimp um, really was the uh, source, and there's a lot of detailed work about this, but it really nailed um, the origins of HIV. And what happened was, uh, you can see from the genetic structure a very high relatedness between SIV, CPZ in red and HIV-1 group M and group N, you can see on this uh, uh, bootstrapped uh, genetic analysis. So that's Beatrice, who's recently moved to the University of Pennsylvania. So then you say, well, what happened? Well, what happened is from the, once humans became infected, uh, through trade routes, especially in sub-Saharan Africa, down the Congo River uh, into uh, Zaire at the time, Kinshasa, uh, the virus uh, was spread human to human, and then it ultimately went to all parts of the world, and it's estimated because of air traffic that it was able to go from that continent to others. Um, the actual discovery of HIV was in 1981, as I'm going to show you in a second, but if I talk to any one of you who are practicing in the late 70s, I guarantee you, you can tell me about a case or two or three that in retrospect had AIDS. It really wasn't until they really started building up. So this is a story out of, um, out of Harvard with Louis Weinstein, who's a sort of a, a, a stalwart in, H in, in, in ID work, who noticed that there were patients back then who had cryptosporidium. And then the big year was 1981 where the MMWR showed cases in Los Angeles and here in New York 
of either pneumocystis crinia pneumonia or Kaposi sarcoma. And what was interesting at that time is there was a new technology called flow cytometry. And Michael Gottlieb was a fellow at UCLA at the time. And he saw a couple of these patients and said, well, let's see what their immune system looks like. So he ran it through flow cytometry and found strikingly there were hardly any CD4 positive cells present. And so the association right away, just because that technology was there, was with this low CD4 count expression. And then this later, that later that year ended up in the New England Journal of Medicine, and there's Michael uh, giving the uh, story on pneumocystis. And then uh, Henry Mazur at the uh, clinical center at NIH um, had a, a companion article. And so around that time, the CDC kind of came into action. And this is heroic work in any way you want to slice it, heroic work. Because if you can imagine now, let's say in 2012, some patients started showing up at your doorstep who had some unusual condition, and you're trying to figure out what it was, and there's no way you can really know without doing really detailed epidemiologic studies. And this is the type of work that was done very quickly, and, and just by shoe leather, uh, hitting the road, interviewing patients, finding out what they did. And the other side of the coin is if you're a provider, it becomes pretty clear that this might be transmissible. And you sit there and wonder, could this be transmitted to me by taking care of the patients? And that was also going on, and a lot of us forget that, but that was clearly happening then. So the CDC in Atlanta headed it up, and a lot of people like Jim Curran and Harold Jaffe and a number of other folks who you know um, got heavily involved in this. They started putting out a series of reports that started detailing what this epidemic was beginning to look like. And these are cases of Kaposi's and PCP uh, from 1981 to 82. And you can just see the explosion. They were trying to see, is this seasonal? Is this, is this something that's going on uh, in the air or that type of thing? And it didn't appear to have any direct seasonal component. And if you sort of dig into that, within five years, a lot of people were, were dying. And very soon thereafter, the notion that the AIDS cases were just the tip of the iceberg of something else because there were the AIDS cases, which if you think about it, you have to define a syndrome so you can do the epidemiologic work. So they put Kaposi's and they put Cryptococcus and they put Mycobacterium avium, et cetera, into the case definition. And then it turned out um, that there were other sort of smoldering syndromes like lymphadenopathy syndrome that people like Donald Abrams at UCSF looked into. And there were arc, arc symptoms that we remember, thrush, that type of thing. But it really wasn't clear how it all related. It also wasn't clear if people who had arc would ultimately progress to AIDS. And over the years, we discovered that that was indeed the case. And so this concept of persistent generalized lymphadenopathy, again, Donald Abrams and others looking at this, trying to say, well, is this cancer? It didn't appear to be. Lymph node biopsies showed uh, hyperplasia. Uh, but nonspecific, non-clonal expansion. And in retrospect, what that is, uh, what that was, was simply a reaction to a virus in the lymph nodes. And somebody was commenting the other day about how we don't see just plain old lymphadenopathy anymore. And that's true among treated patients, but any patient with seroconversion syndrome or people who are, have advanced disease and aren't treated, of course, we still see that. And then it became, started to become clear, well, how is this, who's affected here? Initially, it was gay men. And so I thought, well, maybe it's some sort of gay-related immune deficiency, and that term GRID came along. But then a, a sort of another um, ominous uh, uh, 
hit started happening where female sexual partners of men with HIV started to be seen. And they knew that this was something more than just simply something among gay men, and perhaps there was sexual transmission. And then hemophiliacs. And so maybe this is something blood-borne. And again, if you can just put yourself back into the era when this is going on, trying to understand something that was just very, very bizarre. And again, if you're a provider taking care of these patients, how challenging it is to think through, could this be something that I could pick up from taking care of the patients? Suddenly it's seen among infants, children, and this is out of New York again. So obviously New York was one of the epicenters of the epidemic in its early days and still is to a large degree. Then epidemiologic work started trying to relate this back, and you all may remember the story of Gutan Degas, who's the flight attendant from Air Canada, who was at the center of a lot of the patients, especially in the New York area, but also in L.A., um, who became known as, quote, patient zero. Now, how much he personally had to do with the initial spread of the virus in the, in, around the world isn't, or at least in the U.S., isn't totally clear, but, but it was a really interesting connection that clearly screamed there was some sort of sexual transmission going on. And the cases continued to grow in startling amounts. And what was striking to the people working in the field, especially on the grassroots in the hospitals, was how little there was outside of CDC and NIH to some degree, how little was really being done on a public level. And there was a lot of anger towards that administration during the Reagan years about not really embracing this. And you ask the question, if you put it into context of four or five people died of a cyanide poisoning from Tylenol. You may love you remember that. And the incredible uh, uh, media blitz out of that. And then meanwhile, you look at the numbers of people who are dying here and almost silence, except in the grassroots communities. Very scary time. And then there were uh, stories about, well, could this be transmitted in laboratories, in clinical labs? And there was a whole series of studies about how to handle blood and how to handle uh, laboratory staff. And you'll notice here it says sexual contact should be avoided in persons known. This is 1983. And this is around the time, or just before the time, there was clearly a virus, but it was clear that there was epidemiologic evidence that this was a sexual transmission. And this is, uh, again, pleading to say that studies should be conducted to evaluate screening procedures for identifying and excluding plasma and blood. But at that time, <clears throat> the blood banks really weren't prohibited from, um, um, from uh, for, uh, weren't allowed to move forward and say that this is definitely blood-borne. And there was a lot of controversy about this. The Irwin Blood Bank story is well chronicled in, in uh, Randy Schultz's book, but uh, a really scary time. And here you have someone like Jim Curran who clearly saw that this was transmitted through blood and blood products. And after they had the big meeting, I'll read this for you because it's hard to see from the back of the room, but very depressing, he said. We spent most of them, the time trying to uh, convince the blood banks that it's transmissible. We think there's no doubt, but the blood bank people uh, say that they want more proof. We intend to give them exactly that. And it's just, you know, in retrospect, it's kind of hard to imagine. But again, if you put yourself back in the time and imagine something like that going on now, you can see how there would be schools of thought fighting with one another. And that's indeed what happened. 
And then more and more stories coming out. Again, Jim Curran and, and Harold Jaffe and others <clears throat> showing here that, that AIDS patients linked by sexual contact is consistent with the hypothesis that AIDS is caused by an infectious agent. But what agent was it? And more data. Now 1984, January. Um, these findings strengthen the evidence that AIDS may be transmitted in blood. Um, again, they're trying to soft pedal it, but if you talk to Jim Curran, he'll tell you we knew that it was, and it was just an issue of getting the policies changed. But there were other theories. I know some of those theories continue today with people like Dr. Duesberg um, in, in San Francisco or Berkeley. Uh, but, but things like amyl nitrate, that was one of the first things. So they did the epidemiologic work. They said, well, maybe there's something toxic in amyl nitrate that led to this. Or maybe there was a fungus. Or maybe there's something about semen. And then ultimately a virus was discovered. And along the way, a lot of people thought it was a virus. Many people thought it was CMV. Because when you checked a lot of the patients, they had evidence of CMV. But it really wasn't, it wasn't uniform and it wasn't causal. But this virus, the HIV virus, then known as HTLV-3 or um, LAV or um, uh, what did, what, ARV, ARV uh, that uh, Jay Levy at San Francisco called. And ultimately it was discovered by uh, at least two or three labs around the world. And uh, two of those folks went on to uh, win the Nobel Prize. And the story, the back story, was highlighted in Randy Schultz's book and the band played on. And a lot of you have read this book. I will say that the majority of the information there is, is certainly accurate, but I think to make it an interesting story, uh, Schultz took a lot of um, liberty kind of creating heroes and villains to kind of play it out. And I can tell you that none of the heroes were quite as good as he made them out to be, and none of the villains were really quite as bad, but it made for interesting reading. And finally, they, uh, uh, Newsweek picks it up. The cases are described. Uh, the virus is beginning to be shown, and then it didn't, it really wasn't until 1985 when Rock Hudson became, went public with his uh, illness uh, that uh, the public started to pay attention, but it really wasn't necessarily in a positive way. A lot of this was uh, through a disease we called afraids, uh, or acute fear of AIDS and, and a reaction against that. Meanwhile, in San Francisco, uh, Paul and, and Merle Sandy at the San, at, at San Francisco General started one of the premier programs in uh, AIDS work where they, where a lot of hospitals and a lot of clinicians were running from this. They embraced it and set up a model program. And in fact, uh, I went out there in 1986 and uh, late 85 and um, just went, went around and asked one question. If you guys were starting over, how would you do this? and took lots of notes and came back and started our clinic in Birmingham based on what they said they wished that they had. A lot of things they actually did have, but what they wished they could have. Meanwhile, in Africa, it's clear that something really bad is going on. And as people started looking at this more carefully, there had been a lot of deaths there that were unreported, unrecognized. And uh, Jonathan Mann and uh, you'll see Jim Kern in the center there, um, Tom Quinn's in the background, a lot of people who you have heard about and know of, went over to Zaire, at that time Zaire, and, and also in Uganda, and started working. Uh, the gentleman in the center uh, ran the, uh, the hospital there and was saying that he knew something was up for at least a decade before 1985 because people were dying of cryptococcal disease in droves. 
And so that clearly there was an epidemic explosion in sub-Saharan Africa well before it was recognized here. But because reporting wasn't there, because there wasn't anybody really paying attention outside of those local countries, uh, nothing was really known about that. And here's the Kinshasa Zaire story that Jonathan Mann put together in, in at JAMA. Meanwhile, folks were working on the virus, and this is a, a nice picture of Marty Hirsch uh, on the uh, uh, right with Chip Schooley and then David Ho, and they were fellows in Marty's lab. And I'll say that for those of you who have been in the field for a while, if you look around and ask the question, you know, who, who had the most uh, progeny of fellows who came through the lab and went on to do important work in HIV, Marty Hirsch wins the prize hands down. In addition to Chip and David uh, uh, Tripp, others who've been up in, in Boston, Joe Iron, Vicki Johnson, Bruce Walker, I mean, I could go on and on about people who trained in Boston were affiliated either directly or indirectly with Marty, and his uh, legacy continues to live on. Meanwhile, at the NCI, the National Cancer Institute, Sam Broder, Bob Yarchuin uh, started going through the shelves and finding old cancer drugs that were discarded. In this case, a drug AZT uh, was originally developed in around 1964. And if you remember back to that time, cancer being a uh, disease where cells were replicating it at, at high rates through uh, DNA synthesis, they were trying to find ways to stop that. And if you think about it, DNA was discovered in the late 40s. It's, it's, it's mechanism of replication understood. So uh, nucleoside inhibitors of DNA replication were developed. And a lot of them, like 5FC, 5FU, a number of nucleoside agents, some of which are still used today, were developed around that time. One of them that was cast away because it was a little bit too toxic and didn't work well against cancer was AZT. So they screened a bunch of these, and in, in working with Burroughs Welcome uh, at the time, they discovered that this had activity, and this is the drug. And you can see that it's just a simple nucleoside with a, a zyto group down at the bottom at the three prime hydroxy position of the sugar ring that causes chain termination. And then Margaret Fischel, Doug Richmond, uh, Paul Volverding, others were involved in this original study of AZT. And again, from the back of the room, you don't need a statistician to kind of tell you uh, that this drug worked. And the Data Safety Monitoring Board, after just six months of, of full data set, said, stop, this is clearly working. I will make a parenthetical comment that will come back later today as we talk about antiretroviral therapy today. And that is, think back to that moment, you have a drug that could be toxic, in fact, was at the doses, indeed, they were using, around the clock every four hours, if you remember those days. A lot of anemia, a lot of other problems. The, the, that they wanted to make sure they weren't exposing healthy people to this drug unnecessarily. So they restricted it to people who had prior pneumocystis pneumonia or CD4 count less than 200. That began our tradition that is ingrained in us so deeply that I'm not sure we can let it go about starting therapy based on CD4 counts. And if you think about that, it, it's, it's a legacy that's continued on. The other legacy that's continued on is that nucleosides, because they were the first, are still the backbone. And it, I always sort of let my imagination go to say, what if protease inhibitors have been discovered first? Would they be the backbone or non-nukes? Probably so. And so a lot of this history sort of informs some of the traditions and dogma that we continue today and like one of my uh, colleagues said when I was in training, there's a thin line difference between what's dogma and what's dog manure. <laughs> and a lot of pills, 
and a lot of controversy because despite the fact that there was a lot of great work going on, by this time at CDC and NIH, especially Tony Fauci and the NIAID, there was a lot of pushback at the congressional level and others, and they had to fight for budgets to get to focus on this. But they were obviously very successful. But meanwhile, despite their fight, the activist community, a lot of them built here from the ACT UP New York, which was one of the first ever developed by Larry Kramer, really had tremendous impact on speeding the development of drugs. I've never done the math, but I've always wondered how many lives were saved because of activism. Because you look at other diseases now for which there is no voice, and things sort of smolder along. This epidemic was really speeded up by activism. And it was hurtful to some of the folks. There's Larry Kramer. It was hurtful to some of the people who were ironically the ones who were heroes in a way, fighting every day like Tony, like Marty Hirsch and others, fighting to try to move things forward. Yet they were the targets because they were up front. And I think if you talk to them privately, they would tell you that it was kind of hurtful to be singled out. But yet they persevered, as did all of us. This is Marty Hirsch, the kiss of death. And they were also labeled as the gang of five. People remember that term, the gang of five. Those were the investigators who were early on. This is Marty Hirsch, Doug Richmond, Larry Corey, Tom Merrigan, and Margaret Fishel. And then there was Ryan White. And Ryan White, I think everyone knows the story, grew up in Indiana, was a hemophiliac and was infected through a transfusion. And he was persecuted in his hometown in Cicero, Indiana. It made national news a bullet shot through his living room because of parents being afraid of him attending school and infecting their children, despite knowledge that that wasn't going to happen. His legacy, beyond just the story of humanity, is with us every day. I think almost everyone in this room who sees patients is receiving some sort of support from the Ryan White Care Act. And that is an incredible legacy for any person, but for a kid who was just incredibly brave and weathered a lot of controversy and media attention, a real hero. Well, then the therapies continued on, except that suddenly the beauty of the benefit of AZT became clear and there was resistance. And this is a study that we had actually done with a new drug called L697661. It was a nucleoside. It came from Merck. We used it as monotherapy, a non-nucleoside. And if you look, these are just six weeks, individual patients, four patients, six weeks. And even from the back of the room, again, you can see a nice reduction. This is P24 antigen by week two that was totally gone by week three or four. And we said, gosh, this must be resistance. And indeed it was. And we showed a few years later that you could go from wild-type virus to resistant in 48 hours, at least to start seeing the resistant variants. Within 14 days, half the population. Within 28 days, the entire population of viruses was replaced by resistant viruses. And at the end of that article, I remember writing this with George Shaw, we said, gosh, viral replication must be rapid for this to happen. But we weren't clever enough at that time to ask how rapid. 
until we started getting our hands on HIV RNA back in the 92-93 era, started looking at the response to therapy like this, and then working with modelers like Martin Novak um, at Princeton um, and Alan Perlson at Los Alamos, you can start modeling that decay. And with George Shaw and our group, David Ho, here in New York, had back-to-back -back articles about the viral dynamics that showed that it was one to 10 billion viruses a day, a day. And that was sort of screaming to us, even back then, that we should not let this virus go un unchecked and that we should have some therapy to get involved with. And that led to the classic sort of story of how the virus uh, uh, reproduces itself. And up in the upper right-hand corner, you're going to hear a little bit more today from Mario Stevenson about latently infected cells and trying to get to cure. But that upper right-hand corner is, is our, uh, our difficulty. Studies in lymph nodes, again, you're going to hear more about this from Mario. This was back in 1999, but it showed a nice correlation between the number of infected cells in the body and the plasma viral load. This led to a number of insights in terms of how virus might replicate. There's a cell that's getting infected. It's an activated cell. Uh, this notion of one-to-one -one replication in steady state when one cell gets infected around the time the other one dies, and that's how steady state goes. And you give antiretroviral therapy, you protect that uninfected cell from becoming infected, and that leads to the reduction in plasma virus load, as we saw. Oh, I'm going to skip this. I didn't load it up. But so we went to Vancouver to make the announcement that triple drug therapy was good. And in retrospect, yeah. But at that time, there was a group out of ACT UP San Francisco who didn't think it was so good. And they stormed the, meet, they stormed the room where we were presenting the guidelines for the ISUSA, as it turns out. And they threw what turned out to be beet juice on us. And uh, there's Paul uh, having an intimate moment with one of the uh, activists. And uh, after we got cleaned up, um, it was pretty messy. There's Margaret who got, a little, got hit with a broadside. There's Paul smiling. We, got, we put on T-shirts and continued the, uh, the activity. So after a while, more drugs are produced, and we stop a lot of things. Perinatal transmission almost goes to zero, and, and that's where it stays today. For someone in prenatal care, the death rates start to drop but yet there are side effects. And there's nothing pretty about taking medicine every day, especially when the side effects are there. And we start looking at other reservoirs, start losing some of the drugs along the way, gaining some other ones. And studies of lymph nodes, especially at the time in gut, uh, started showing that um, there was a lot of damage done in the very early part of infection, and this leads to the uh, FEBIG classification of acute infection. Uh, <clears throat> and then work again out of George Shaw's lab starts to show the founder virus concept. And this is being used a lot today in vaccine research. And a way to think about that is that if this is a mucosal surface on the left-hand side, and you can see either sperm or, or other bodily fluids, but I guess sperm in this case, is infected with viruses, several viruses might get across and abort or never cause infection, but that one virus, that red one, goes a cross clonally expands, and that's how infection ensues. Drugs get a lot better. We go from one drug, uh, one pill to, uh, sorry, several pills to one. And the guidelines start to change such that now uh, the CD4 counts are leaning heavily in favor of, of starting earlier. But yet, when you look around the world, this is 2007, we don't do a very good job of finding people early. So some of the question of when to start is moot. 
These are average CD4 counts at the time of patients being infected. But yet, but yet, the percentage of people with less than 50 copies is rising, and that's true everywhere. The drugs are getting better. They're better tolerated. And this is a slide I'm going to show you a little later about is there harm in delay. And if there is harm, what is it? And a lot of us nowadays are leaning towards inflammation, and you're going to hear later today from Dr. Jim Stein about inflammation and its potential role in cardiovascular disease or not, and later from Joe Margulik about the inflammation role on aging. The further work on how inflammation plays a role, these are the things that we're going to, again, talk about later. This is kind of where we are today. We're seeing improvement in a lot of HIV-related diseases, but non-HIV chronic comorbidities are starting to take over. We see hypertension here in a big way, but all the other things that we're encountering today, we're forced to become primary care providers. Then, as Paul alluded to, prevention is becoming very important. We're looking at mucosal surfaces. There were studies done of male-to-female transmission or female-to-male transmission and discovered that circumcision actually works, 60% protection. If we had a vaccine that was effective at a level of 60%, we would be dancing in the streets. Circumcision, 60% protection, which led to a lot of interesting promotions that this florist had. I think they meant to say peonies, but who knows? The Allisonville Nursery is a very popular place. And microbicide studies have come on, and there's been a lot of other evidence of protection that changes. But I think I'll actually close here just in the interest of time, but finish with the following comments. This is where we are today. And in the course today, we're going to talk about a lot of these issues about where this is going in the future. What kind of comorbidities are we going to see? Patients are living a near-normal lifespan, but it's not completely normal yet. And why is that? Why are malignancies coming up? Why is heart disease appearing to occur a little bit earlier in patients? What about cognitive dysfunction? We'll hear about that in the last talk today. And trying to pull this all together, knowing where we're going to go and how we're going to get there, is really a key point. But one of the things that I think we're all focused on, and I know especially here in New York and the study in the Bronx, is how do we find all the people who are infected, identify them through universal opt-out testing, when they get positive, linking them to care, treating for those who are appropriate and those who want to be treated, and then following them long-term and helping with retention and care. Those are the types of challenges we're up against today on one hand, and on the other hand, trying to find a cure, which Mario Stevenson will talk to us about, and then, of course, vaccine, which we're not talking about directly this year, but perhaps in future years. So I just thought we'd kick off the morning with this overview, just to kind of orient us all to the same page, especially for the younger folks who weren't around back in that era. But I think we all are grateful for the efforts that a lot of the pioneers in HIV research and care had done back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. So thanks for your attention, and I'll be back a little bit later. Thank you.